Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the show. This is Missing the Point with Miles David, and I am your host. Thank you for coming back and tuning back in. This is your first time. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening. If you are a new listener, welcome. Make sure to keep up with the podcast on all social platforms at Missing Point Pod. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Clubhouse. Yes, we are on them all. Yes, I look at all of them. And yes, I am tired. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I have a good show for you guys today. I am going to recap the Mutua Madrid Open that just wrapped up as I record this today on Sunday, May 9th, which brings me to saying happy Mother's Day. By the time this actually, this episode actually goes up, it'll be the day after. But um, I just want to take a little bit of time to appreciate my mom for being supportive of me in this endeavor. One day I'm gonna have to get her on the podcast, even though she cringes at the thought, but she actually doesn't know it, but she would be a great guest because <laughs> anybody that personally knows me and knows my mom knows that we have we have good banter between each other, which is where I get enough nerve to actually say I wanna have a podcast. <laughs> but yes, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. You guys do a thankless job sometimes and even though you know your kids can be bratty I know I can be one of the bratty kids sometimes we would not be half of the people that we are without you so again happy Mother's Day and continue to celebrate celebrate every day because Lord knows the world would not go even close to (laughs) the circular motion it's supposed to go in without mothers and praying mothers at that so shout out to all the mothers that listen to this show um and all of that stuff so yeah happy mother's day um but like i was saying in this in this particular show i'm going to recap uh the madrid open that just wrapped up talk about the winners the losers (laughs) um also preview a tournament that is technically already started but we're just gonna say it hasn't for the sake of this podcast okay all right we're talking about i'm talking about the tournament in rome which is one of my personal favorites if you've listened to um some episodes from like the latter part of 2020 when i was kind of just getting things going i've talked about the rome open again and it was kind of held um in the later part of 2020 because of covid reasons 2020 just messed up everybody's year i mean it just whatever but that's behind us now anyway <laughs> the Rome Open is set to uh, start this week so it's another tournament that is leading up to the clay court tournament in Paris Roland Garros the French Open the second Grand Slam of the year and we are pretty much in full swing of the clay court season so things are shaping up nicely and we're going to talk about that on today's episode I'm also going to talk about some things that I've been aware of in pop culture I need to get off my chest. And I'm also might do a little rant at the end because something or someone, a.k.a. the Olympics, are getting on my nerves. And I feel like they are drastically, you know what, missing the point. So I got to talk about it. So stay tuned. This is going to be a good episode and I can't wait to get into it. Let's have some fun. Okay. So first things first, let's talk about the Mutua Madrid Open. The Mutua Madrid Open. Oh, wait, hold up. I guess I have to describe something first before I go into the tournament. The reason I'm calling it the Mutua Madrid Open instead of just the Madrid Open is based on sponsorship reasons. So in this case, anytime I would say like the blank, then city open or tournament or whatever, 
Usually the first name of a tournament is the lead sponsor's name. So in this case, it is Mutua, which is actually a Spanish insurance, uh, a Spanish insurance. Oh, why can I not say insurance today? It is a Spanish insurance company that is held or sponsored that event, um, which is a pretty large event, very large event. Actually, it is considered a ATP Masters 1000 event on the men's side and a WTA 1000 event for the women. Um, so it, it brings out the big names and it, it's a joint event held on red clay in a really actually beautiful stadium in Madrid, Spain. It brings out the big names, like I said, and it is one of the key lead up events to the French Open. And that just wrapped up not too different this year. The defending champion Novak Djokovic was out. Um, mm. <laughs> I'm laughing before I actually even make a comment on Novak Djokovic. Let's just say he wasn't in the tournament. He just wasn't in it. That's, that's all I'm going to say today. And then also the defending champion on the women's side was Kiki Burton's and she didn't have a great tournament mostly because um, Kiki Burton's up the Netherlands. She's still battling a Achilles injury. I'm pretty sure she's still somewhere near the top 10, but she's just been battling injury amidst the pandemic. So things haven't been looking too great for her, but she was in the draw. She just didn't go very far and she was the, she was the defending champion. So um, Kiki, if you're listening to this ever, I hope you do get better because I don't mind you playing good tennis. I actually like it pretty I don't mind it. I like it. <laughs> so anyway, I, I got off track, y'all. The Madrid Open. Uh, let's start with the men. Let's let's recap the men's tournament because I think just by a hair, by a smidge, the men were more entertaining this week. Usually it's the other way around, but just by a hair, the men were enter entertaining. Um, the tournament was led by the top seed, Rafael Nadal, who was coming off of his win in Barcelona, Spain. Also, some top-seeded players. We have at number two, Daniel Medvedev, who... <laughs> had a meltdown this tournament he just does not like the surface of red clay i personally i know tennis fans you know true red clay tennis fans out there guard your ears i'm so sorry i just don't care for like me personally playing on clay i don't my game doesn't like it yet this may change in the in the future and i also don't really feel the butterflies in my stomach for the clay court season like I do during hard court season or specifically the grass court season. It's just something about clay court tennis that I don't love. I don't hate it. I just realize that I don't love it. Anyway, uh, other big names in the tournament included Dominic Team, who was coming back on the tour after about a two-month hiatus. He personally just felt like he was he wasn't dealing with the different ways that tournaments have to make these players be in bubbles. And he just felt like he was lacking some motivation and he was dealing with like some small niggling injuries. So he took some time off the court um, in the tour to kind of get his mind right. And that was, he was back in this tournament. Also uh, the tournament included Stefano Tsitsipas, Alexander Zverev, Andre Rublev, Diego Schwartzman, and Matteo Berrettini. That rounds out your top eight seeds. And for me, the tournament didn't get really interesting until we got to the quarterfinals. And the first quarterfinal matchup actually included a, a, a relative shocker, just when you think about the fact that Nadal hasn't lost, or I'm not gonna say hasn't lost because that's not a, that's not true at all. Just seeing Nadal for me, watching my eyes, <laughs> or not watching my eyes, laying my eyes on Nadal losing a tennis match always feels well a tennis match on clay, I should say. It always feels like something. In this case, not so much because let me just give a little background on Madrid, the actual tournament and the environment. The environment in Madrid is actually one of the highest, I guess above water places in the world. So therefore they have a really high altitude 
and high altitude definitely impacts the way a tennis match is played. It impacts the way the ball flies through the court. It impacts how much control the players have over their shots. Some players usually increase the tension in their strings and all that stuff. So just in general, the there are intangibles, maybe intangibles isn't the right word. There are factors, environmental factors sometimes that does um, play into how a court plays in the, in the speed and just overall how it can give an advantage to some players and give a disadvantage to others. And traditionally, this is Rafael Nadal's, <laughs> I say lease with like air quotes. This is his least accomplished uh, clay court tournament. Almost every other clay court tournament, obviously including the French Open in Roland Garros, he's won upwards of 10 times. This one, he's only actually won it five times. The tournament has been played on clay since 2009, and since then he's won it. Won it. I can, why can I not talk today, y'all? He's won it four times on clay, which you know any other player would 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 love to do. But just in in general, this is considered his weaker surface because weaker tournament because of the altitude there and the way it impacts the ball and all that fun stuff. And with that being said, he he went up against the up and comer. You know, I mean, maybe he shouldn't, maybe he shouldn't be considered an up and comer. Maybe his variable shouldn't be considered that. Maybe he's like, he's not up and he hasn't, he's come already. Oh, yikes. <laughs> he's just here. Alexander Zverev, he beat Nadal 6-4, 6-4 in the quarterfinals. That was his first win over Nadal on clay courts in any tournament and um, Nadal actually came into that match with seemingly good confidence. So for him to, you know, lose in straight sets to Zverev, even though he had lost to Zverev in their previous two meetings, they just were not on the clay court surface. So Zverev had, you know, a level of confidence that he could beat Rafa Nadal, but it just does take a special player and a special uh, game plan, if you will, to beat Rafa on clay, which Zverev had that day. And he looked good throughout this tournament. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert he ended up being the champion so if you're gonna beat Rafi Nadal then you are you're you, it, odds are if you beat Nadal on clay you're doing something pretty good so uh, that was the first quarterfinal second quarterfinal right underneath them was uh, Dominic team who I who mentioned earlier was just coming back on tour from a brief hiatus he took on John Isner and John Isner also had a very interesting tournament. Um, he was not seeded at this tournament, and he took out some pretty decent names to get to the quarterfinal where he faced team. Um, like I was saying, those conditions of <laughs> high altitude, if you are a tall player, John Isner is like something like 6'9", 6'10", and his serve is ridiculous. That tends to help a player like that that has really, really, you know, that is that is tall and has a lot of pace. It, it tends to reward those those players, and that was no different this year. Um, but Dominic team was actually able to handle him in the quarterfinals uh, in three sets. He dropped the first set until he got. I'm pretty sure Dominic team just got adjusted to that big old serve because John Isner, <sighs> John Isner to me, I know he's American. I know I quote unquote should be rooting for him, but he's like the y'all know where y'all get a loaf of bread. And like it's the first it's the first piece in there that everyone just avoids, but you know you have to go through it to get the good bread. That's what he is to me. Like of course he's gonna be in the package, but I'm also not excited about eating it. 
I hope that makes sense for you at home. <laughs> so yeah, Dominic team won his quarterfinal and set up a semifinal between Zverev and team. I'll get back to that one in a second. The third quarterfinal was between a surprise, a bunch of uh, two surprise quarterfinalists in some ways, one more than the other. The one that's a little bit more surprising was Alexander Bublik. If you type his name into YouTube, I'm sure you will see all kinds of trick plays or him going at it with the umpire. He's one of those type of players that is just a showboater. Um, he has good talent, but he typically doesn't um, utilize it. But I will say this year he is posting more consistent results. He's not necessarily winning. Like he's not on some ridiculous winning streak, but he is in the conversation. He's winning matches or he's winning a match or two or three to get to the more business end of tournaments. So that is nice to see him use his talent for more than just a couple of highlight reels on Instagram and YouTube. Um, but he actually lost his quarterfinal match against a, this is an up-and-coming player that I'm actually very excited to keep an eye on. His name is Casper Rude. He's from Norway. Norway, as a country, does not really have a an extensive history of um, tennis champions. The only one he really could rely on was his dad, Christian Rude, who actually played as a professional tennis player years before and is now coaching Casper. Um, and Casper Rude has a game that is that looks just naturally adjusted to the clay. He he. He moves with such intention, but not necessarily when you look at him, you don't necessarily see aggression, but he doesn't play passively. He's it's it's I, I need to watch his game more, but when I do watch his, his game, I'm left wanting to watch more of it. So that's always a good sign for me. Also rounding out the quarterfinalists and quarterfinal matchups was Matteo Berrettini against Christian Garin, which was actually a really nice clay court match. It went three sets. Christian Garin grabbed the first set from Matteo Berrettini 7-5 before Berrettini kind of righted the ship a little bit and took charge of the match. He ended up winning the, sec the second and the third set 6-3-6-love. Six, six, and Berrettini went on to defeat Rude and get to the final of the tournament where he met Zverev and... I watched, did I watch the the entire Zverev Berrettini match from like first ball to last? I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> I have to say this, going into that match, I had a sneaky suspicion that Zverev would win. And he ultimately did, but I honestly did want Berrettini to make a match out of it, if not actually pull out the win, because Berrettini, in my mind, has been like teetering between being a serious contender to be one of the next males to win a Grand Slam major title, but he hasn't, there's a reason he's been teetering, right? In my mind, I thought him winning this match, getting to the final is a great, a great accomplishment. It's his first Masters 1000 final, so he has definitely great building blocks to move ahead with and great confidence to bring him forward for the remainder of the season, in my opinion. He plays good clay court tennis, however, his inexperience showed and a little bit of his um, some some holes in his game did show a little bit. And Zverev, although I'm not Zverev's number one fan, what I, what I will say about Zverev is he has a certain level of determination on the court so that even if things aren't going well, even if his serve is landing in the bottom of the net, there's a certain level of, hey, I'm just going to go for this or I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to do the I'm going to do what. I can rely on to get me through this match. And a lot of times he relies on his length and his reach. He's six, six. He moves like a gazelle out there and he's pretty like he's, he's very athletic. I'm not trying to undersell him again. Like I said, I don't 
feel the most inspired when I watch Alexander Zverev play. But I, I mean, if I'm just being non-biased, evidently he's doing something right because this was his fourth Masters 1000 title. This was his second title at Madrid, actually. He won it back in 2018. And although this is like a weird stat, although he's yet to be a top 10 player at a Grand Slam, so there, there's still improvement to be made at for Zverev as far as beating the best players at the biggest events when the pressure's on. Outside of that, he really holds his own as a tennis player. And, you know, that is all you can really ask of as a professional, ta- professional player. I do think he, to some degree, compartmentalizes what's going on with his life outside of the court. If you haven't been aware, he has been going through a little bit of some uh, maybe mudslinging. I was going to say that maybe that's not the most correct word, but his name has been impressed for none of the good reasons lately. He was accused of domestic violence against his one of his former one of his former girlfriends. And then another one of his former girlfriends actually was pregnant and just gave birth. So he now he's a father. He's already said that he doesn't really want uh, or intend for a relationship with that. Um, the child's mother. Um, he just recently split from Roger Federer's esteemed. Um, was it his marketing group or um, representation firm? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. Zverev split from. So his his off the court aura has been clouded a little bit, but his on court aura for the past two months or so, like he he won in Acapulco, which is a hard court tournament, ATP 500 level, maybe a month or two ago over Stefano Tsitsipas in a really good match. And then, you know, this week he comes in, not necessarily anyone's favorite, but he did take out the favorite of the tournament, Rafael Nadal, and went on to win, win the tournament. So, I mean, this puts him in a really good position to do some damage at the French Open. It's just a matter of if he can do it. He's made the quarterfinals there a couple of different times. I do think he can go one step further, but with Zverev, sometimes it is a matter of nerves. So it's it's weird when I describe him because as determined as he looks sometimes, sometimes he goes out there and looks like a complete shadow of himself. And hopefully he finds a better range between that. It's just like as much as you can count on him to be in the mix in some of these non-Grand Slam tournaments, even though there are prestigious tournaments in their own right, when the pressure is really on and when ESPN or tennis channel has that camera on him at the grand slams, he, he he has shown himself not to be the most clutch. So maybe this is a step in the right direction. We shall see, but shout out to Alexander Zverev for picking up his uh, fourth masters 1000 title and second at Madrid. Congratulations, Zverev. Now let's move on to the women's side of the tournament. Uh, The women's side of the tournament, usually, like I said, probably, at Najim at this point, usually host a pretty packed field. Anytime you have a Masters 1000 event and it's like a draw of 64 women, it typically produces a draw, especially on the women's side, that makes for tight matchups in the earlier rounds. And, um, and that even continues to the later rounds. Sometimes people even think it's harder to win one of these tournaments than it is for you to win a grand slam just because of the depth and the fact that all 64 of those players 
potentially, you know, sometimes there are stretches, <laughs> but all 64 of them have a potential to do some damage. And uh, the tournament was led by number one seed, number one player in the world, Ash Barty. Naomi Osaka made an appearance at this tournament. This is her first time playing on clay court this season. Also, number three seed, Halep's ups. I was going to say Halep, Simona. Simona Halep. <laughs> uh, also in the field was Fidelina, Arena Sabalenka, Carolina Pliskova, Kiki Burtons, and Belinda Bencic. Also in the field were uh, Venus Williams, uh, Iga Swiatek, the 2020 French Open champion, and uh, Victoria Azarenka, just to name some 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 marquee names that were in this tournament. Um, and again, the tournament really kind of uh, heated up for me at the quarterfinals, like at the quarterfinal stage, like it typically always does. Something about quarterfinal stage, y'all. I just like it. It's like this is where we separate the boys from the men or the girls from the women or some, you know, some kind of old adage like that you get what i'm saying <laughs> in the first part of the draw it was ash barty versus kavitova in the quarterfinals i watched a, a lot of that match another great match a good rivalry between those two i think they have a lot of adoration between each other off the court it just seems like they're able to you know be friendly and you know, cordial off the court, if not even more than cordial. And then when it's time to play, they're like, okay, I want to win this match. And then as soon as the last point is played, they go back to, um, you know, being good adversaries and, and, and being cool with each other. And I, I like the way Ash Barty goes about her business to a certain extent. The, <laughs> the person in me that just begs for a little bit more drama wishes that she was a little bit more extroverted. Not that she's not extroverted at all. It's not like she's just this stoic cement player out there, but she does have a very, a very um, cool, calm and collected aura about her, which I think actually serves her well in the tight matches that she plays because she never really gets too ahead of herself. And she always has a really good scope on where she is, what she can do in the match, and obviously, and, and honestly, what she can't do, and things that are in her control. But nonetheless, she did beat Kavitova in a very, a very tight three sets, three set, uh, a three. Why can I not talk today, y'all? I'm gonna leave that in there. I don't feel like I didn't that out. <laughs> uh, she beat Ash, Ash Barty, beat Kavitova in a very tight three set match, six one three six six three, to make it to the semifinals. Ash Barty, like I said, she just keeps winning, um, and. She didn't, she didn't end up winning this tournament. She did make it to the finals, but it, it's nice to see some continuity at the top of the women's game, especially from the number one player. She's somebody that is proving herself to always show up in the business end of tournaments, and I do have to respect her for that tremendously because it's not easy to do. Like it's it's some, Sometimes people think it's, it's easy to get there and stay there, but it's actually harder to stay there once you have gotten to the top and you, you are the hunted, not the hunter. So shout out to Barty for doing that. She is in uh, pretty decent shape to make a good run in Roland Garros, in my opinion. I'm not necessarily saying she is the favorite, but she's one of the favorites for sure. As well as Kvitova. Kvitova is no slouch, no slouch on clay. She just made the semifinals in 2020, so she has some points to defend, and she um, is, you know, she's had a decent season. Nothing too spectacular for Kvitova yet, but also not bad at all by any means. So, the second quarterfinal of the tournament featured a surprise package in Paula Badosa, a Spanish player who was born in New York, actually, um, but was moved back to Spain because her family is apparently in the fashion industry there. So, that's a really cool note if you don't know much about Paula Badosa. 
Uh, she's a very aggressive-minded Spanish player, and she basically had the tournament of her life in her her hometown. She was not seated. She's not, you know, she's not a player that has has made a mark at a Grand Slam. She's not a household name yet, but I do think if she keeps playing well, uh, she may she may just get there. She has a kind of game that can bother opponents, and I mean, she got all the way to the semifinals of this event. She beat Benchish in her quarterfinals, and. Just a small note about Belinda Bencic. I do I do believe Belinda Bencic is very talented. She reminds almost everyone that watches her play of Martina Hingis. She was mentored and coached by Martina Hingis's mother, and I think she's actually hit with Martina Hingis herself. So she has that that kind of look and guile in her play, but for some reason it is not translating to me to the kind of major breakthroughs. Like, she hasn't been to a Grand Slam final. She hasn't won a WTA 1000 event. Like, while it's actually... Well, she has. She won Toronto. Um, I guess that was considered a WTA 1000. Yes. It's just that for some reason, I feel like there is... there's. I want to believe that there is a higher ceiling for, for Belinda Benches, but she might actually be at the ceiling that is her ceiling. So... I'll keep an eye out on her, but when I see her in the draw, I'm, I'm always conflicted as to, is this, is this like this hovering around the top 10? Is this actually going to be the, uh, the peak of her game or is there more that she can get out of her game? We shall see. Uh, let's see who else was in the quarterfinals. We have Arena Sabalenka versus Elise Mertens. Those two are actually also good friends on the tour. They've played doubles together. They've won Grand Slam doubles championships together. Arena Sabalenka has actually gotten to world number one in part in, in doubles. She's gotten to the world number one ranking in doubles in part from pairing with Elise Mertens. And that match was pretty much all Sabalenka. I'm pretty sure Sabalenka... Because they're doubles players, they play often against each other. She knew where Mertens was doing before Mertens was doing it. Unfortunately, Mertens had to pull out through due to a it looks it looked like a thigh injury. She pulled out, and she was kind of sad at the end of that. It was nice to see them kind of have you know a sister to sister moment and embrace each other. But um, hopefully, Mertens uh, is is not injured too badly because she's one of those players that I feel like is always in the mix. She's playing week in week out never really losing early, always losing to players that are ranked ahead of her. So good luck to her as she kind of, you know, gets gets her body ready for at least a, a decent run at the French Open. The last quarterfinal on the women's side actually featured, featured two somewhat also surprise packages in Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, kind of a throwback name, and also a newer name in Karolina Muhova. I do believe that Karolina Muhova has the type of game that could stick around in women's tennis. I don't know if she necessarily has the belief, but I do think her game is there to trouble the type of players that she needs to trouble to get higher up in the rankings. She wasn't seated in this tournament. She wasn't ranked high enough to be seated, but she is coming off and is probably enjoying one of the best seasons of her career. She made the semifinals in Australia, beating Ash Barty along the way. And she's, you know, she just plays really solid, tactical like smart tennis and i think the clay courts are going to be kind to her she was actually the player that upset naomi osaka um to get to that quarterfinal match she ended up losing against pavlyuchenkova who was having another of her (laughs) 
I'm laughing because Pavlyuchenkova is a Russian player. She's been around easily for a decade. She's been as high as like, you know, somewhere in the t- as high as the top 20. I don't know if she's actually cracked the top 10, but she's been as high as somewhere between 10, uh, 10 and 20, which is not a bad career at all. It's just that she goes through patches. And I believe I was reading or looking on the TV somewhere. This was her first WTA quarterfinal since the 2020 Australian Open. It's like she didn't make she didn't make a quarterfinal anywhere at any level besides this week. So she's one of those players that can kind of just catch fire out of nowhere. And once she does, it takes a strong performance from one of the women to really take her out of the tournament. But back to Osaka, just for a quick second. I want to spend some time talking about Naomi Osaka because I think she has one of the more interesting storylines heading into the French Open and just heading into this what we call like the natural court surface swing because it's the clay courts and the grass courts. And Naomi Osaka just has not had the results on those surfaces. Unlike the massive results she's had on hard courts, winning four grand slams, one every year since 2018, which has, you know, made her world number one and, and a major factor in women's tennis. I watched her match against Muhova and she never quite looked looked settled like the Osaka that we see showing up at the US Open and showing up at Australian Open or at Indian Wells or other places where she looks so sure footed and aware of her talents and aware of how she should go about winning the match on the clay surface. You can almost kind of see the question marks in her eyes. And it's not like she has, you know, huge, huge, huge issues, right? Because she she can hang. She can. I think she can hang, but there are players that feel far more comfortable and don't second-guess themselves on clay like she does. And the only remedy to kind of get past that is to just keep playing. And now it's just a matter of how is Osaka going to schedule her tournaments and just schedule her year around actually closing the gap in the comfortability on playing on the natural surfaces. Because as of right now, she's a player that basically does kind of the Serena thing. Like she shows up to the biggest tournaments, plays those and kind of rests to peak for those tournaments, especially peak for the Grand Slams. And nothing is wrong with that if you can consistently do it and you're showing results. Like if it's working, if it's working, don't don't fix it. She's obviously doing something right to be a four-time Grand Slam champion. However, I think if she's going to eventually make herself a real threat at Roland Garros at Wimbledon, she's going to have to add some serious... Um, basically miles under her feet to get comfortable in that situation. I, I want to see that for her. I think another another level of being a great champion is the ability to adapt and, and overcome challenges. And right now, the clay courts and grass, for that matter, present a challenge to her. So I just want to see, you know, I want to have an eye out for her when she tr- attempts to to do better. I think she can. It's just a matter of win not if because i think she is a very smart girl and she will make the best of her talents on those on that surface i I think she will my my spirit leads me to believe that (laughs) um so yes i I don't think i said sabalenka won the tournament yet have i said that no i haven't (laughs) so the tournament winner in madrid was arena sabalenka and i do have to get i do have to give sabalenka credit i've talked about her a bunch of different times on this podcast, I'm sure. She plays the kind of tennis that makes me smile, <laughs> but she also plays the kind of tennis that makes me facepalm. And for chunks of her career now, she's only 22, maybe 23 tops. Sometimes it would it would vary between 
the kind of tennis that makes me smile and the kind of tennis that makes me cringe way too much in between matches. And she's starting to find a happy medium. And for that, I have to give her credit because it's not like she is dialing back the way she plays tremendously. She's not ever going to be a ball pusher. She's never, she's never going to be the girl that you can depend on like a, like a counter puncher or a human wall and get a thousand balls back. No, she's going to be aggressive if she wants to dictate. It's just that the margin that she has, the, 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 the spots that she goes for aren't as risky. And I think that served her well throughout most of this tournament. She wasn't challenged in the tournament really up until the final where she reached, when she reached the final and she faced Barty and she faced Barty just a week ago in Stuttgart. And that match was three sets. This match in Madrid was also three sets. So they have actually a nice little rivalry going on. That was their third time meeting. They also met in Miami earlier this year um, and Barty won that as well. So this is her first win over Ash Barty this year. It brings her to a career high ranking of number four. This is her biggest singles title of her career and first on clay so in her mind she feels like she can hang now you know so it was just nice to see her really just storm through the tournament and even when things got tricky in the final um because she dropped the second set she won the first set six love and i mean she just completely bulldozed over the number one player in the world in the first set six love and that's just something you don't see every day but she has the kind of game to do that she she just has it in her artillery she has the arsenal to really take the rack out of your hands and just have you looking confused over there because winners are coming at will from her but she also has a tendency to go off and that's the risk you take from playing such an aggressive aggressive style of game but it was nice to see her be able to have the dip in play and get right back up and finish the match out because she finished the match out winning i want to say like the last 11 points in a row so again it's like she just caught fire when she absolutely needed to and played better than her opponent and she's the one holding the trophy and I like Sabalenka, y'all. <laughs> Again, kind of similar to Zverev. Zverev has actually, um, you know, moved the needle forward in some way as far as getting to the final of the U.S. Open last year. Sabalenka has not even been to a quarterfinal of a Grand Slam. Not any of them. Not the U.S. Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, Australia, nothing. Her best showing has been a fourth round. She reached the fourth round in the U.S. Open back in 2018, losing to Osaka. And she just reached the fourth round, losing to Serena in the Australian Open this year in 2021. So her next step has to be able, her next step should be trying to perform the best she can at the Grand Slams. Again, the Grand Slams are not everything in tennis, but they are extremely relevant in showing who's the best in the world because those are the moments that people train for. Those are the the, the moments that people are dreaming about and those are the trophies that people want on their mantle those are the trophies that make you into hall of famers and she has to prove that she can get on those stages and perform as well as she has performed on other events throughout the year so if she does that then i think she's going to be well on her way the first thing she has to do though is break the quarterfinal seal at a major if she does that i think the floodgates might open up for her and she'll be like okay well you know cross that hurdle what's the next one you know she has that kind of personality and confidence to her that i like it's just like i said earlier she just has to know when to reel it in and when to reset when her shots start hitting the back fence instead of the back baseline (laughs) 
because <laughs> sometimes that can happen. So shout out to Arena Sabalenga for picking up, you know, the title this week, the biggest title of her career. And I'm actually interested to see um, how that's going to transfer over to Rome if she if she actually continues to play. I think she is on she's in the draw in Rome. I just don't know if she's actually going to complete it, because sometimes when you have big wins like this and you play a bunch of matches in a row, it's really hard to do the same thing in a different part of the world with different conditions. And it's just it's just not as easy as just oh, hopping on a plane and going to play some more tennis. It's, it's a little difficult, more difficult than that. So we shall see how she fares in the next couple of weeks. Um, in lead up to Roland Garros, which speaking of Roland Garros, Roland Garros actually begins at the end of this month. Main draw plays, main draw starts, main draw starts May 30th. Yes, it starts May 30th. And I'm excited. I know I said I wasn't a clay fan, a clay fan, but given the way tennis was just ripped from us <laughs> last year, I'm excited to watch almost any tennis, even if that means I have to put up with tennis channel in there mediocre coverage and commentating because my god i know it's it's the most mediocre thing i've ever heard in my life sorry tennis channel fans <laughs> i'm trying to pull up this draw to rome so i can start talking about it because i mean actually i've, I've peeked at it a couple times because that's my job but i just wanted to pull it up officially here hold on so really quickly let's just go through the rome draw because there are some interesting storylines happening in rome as it is one of the last big lead-up tournaments before the french open and it typically is a good indicator of how um results may look at the french open not always but a, a fair indicator <laughs> and it actually is the return of play for serena williams serena williams has not been on the tour since she lost in the semifinals of Australia. So she is making her comeback, her well-awaited comeback. I know I've been waiting for it. Um, she actually has a decent draw that she could work herself into. Um, before I get into the draw, though, I do have to say that Venus actually pulled out not too long ago. No word on why she pulled out, but if I know Venus Williams like I think I know Venus Williams. We're friends in my head. <laughs> she pulled out for a good reason, and she just feels like she's not healthy enough to compete. And then also another pullout or withdrawal from the, from the tournament is a player that I... In this instance, I understand why she had to withdraw, but I'm just tired of announcing that she has withdrawn from tournaments. And I'm speaking about Bianca Andreescu. She, at this point of her career, I'm not sure if she's going to have longevity. And again, she withdrew from this tournament because she actually tested positive for COVID. She was going to play in Madrid and tested positive before actually competing in that event. So she had to withdraw from that. And I believe from what she's announced on her Instagram that she was unable to actually fly to Rome because of her positive testing. And I guess there's not been enough time between when she got a positive test and when the Roman government is actually equipped to handle people into their country that have tested positive in that time frame so she just actually couldn't even get into the country so therefore she was forced to withdraw so i get that that is like something that's kind of out of her control but it just adds to the list of withdrawals that she's had yes she did have that wonderful run in the tournament in miami it was great to see her back on the court she has a way of entertaining a crowd like very other few people do but it's just <laughs> it's just a note just a note that she 
has not played tennis all that often, whether it's from in, whether it's due to injury or withdrawal for another reason. She just has been spotty in playing tennis for and for a young player. I don't believe Bianca's even 22 yet. That's just not a good uh, it's not a good sign. It may it may change and I'll be happy for it to change. It's just not a good sign now. However, like I was saying, Serena Williams is in this tournament. Also, it's the return to play of Sophia Kennan, who was the 2020 Australian Open champion. Actually, she is the top ranked woman um, American in tennis right now. She's playing for the first time and she's also she's also made a big shift in her coaching dynamic. She will no longer be coached by her father in their t- their relationship was just obviously becoming a little tumultuous. She's older now. I don't think anybody at the age of a tender 21 or 22, like she is wants their father, like over their life with their thumb. Like I just, it's, it's tennis has a reputation for parents to be a little helicopter parent E and he definitely seemed like he was doing that. So I think she would just decided, and I'm pretty sure it was a tough decision. She just decided it was better if we parted ways as my dad is my coach, so she's in the middle of rebuilding her team. We will see how her actual competitive tennis looks like while she's doing that. So, shout out to Kenan. Also, in this tournament, again, Ash Barty's number one seed. She just keeps playing and playing and playing. She's not trying to go back to Australia anytime soon, <laughs> it seems like. Naomi Osaka's in this tournament, again, trying to find her former head of the French Open. She's in the same quarter as Serena Williams. It's not lost on me that every time those two are in the same tournament, they somehow play each other before the final. Neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, both Serena and Osaka have first round buys. Serena is going to play the winner of Laura Sigamund and Nadia Podoroska. I think that's a winnable match. I do think it is a winnable match, even though Serena is probably going to be fighting off some level of rust. And also Osaka faces the winner of Daria Kasakina over Jessica Pagula. That is a potentially dangerous matchup. Both of those are potentially dangerous matchups for Osaka because both of those players, Kasakina and Pagula, have put in really good results and are fairly comfortable on the clay surface. So Osaka needs to come out of the gate very sharp if she wants to go deep in this tournament. So we we, we will see. Also, the Madrid winner, Sabalenka, is in this tournament, as well as Simona Halep, who is the defending champion. She won here in 2020. She's in this tournament as well. I'm not going to make any predictions. I'm just going to happily watch this tournament and see what plays out. It's, it's going to be a stacked field. Also, I'm just looking at the tournament Shouting out some names. Igus Wiatek is in this tournament as well. The 2020 French Open champion, uh, Maria Sakari. She's in this tournament as well. I believe Coco Goff is playing. Let me look for her name. Let me look for her name. Let me look for her name somewhere. Yes, Coco Goff is in this tournament. She plays Yulia Putinseva in the first round. And she could actually meet Maria Sakari if... Uh, if the seeds hold, she could meet Maria Sakari in the first round, which would be an interesting matchup. So this should be an interesting tournament on the women's side. On the men's side, it'll be the return of Novak Djokovic since his loss to Aslan Karatsev in his hometown or home country of Serbia. Um, he's the defending champion of 2020, and it's weird because Nadal also has... Um, defending champion points in 2019 because it's just the the COVID thing again mixed up the whole ranking system so it's trying to work itself out but it's just one of those situations where the gears are kind of funky and they have to be funky for a little bit before they get smooth again or before they get smooth again excuse me um but yeah 
Novak Djokovic is going to be back in action. Still no Roger Federer on the clay. Roger Federer has been MIA since he made a quick comeback in Doha earlier this year. He is set to come back. He's made an announcement that he's going to be playing in a smaller tournament in Geneva, which is in his home country of Switzerland, right before the French Open. He doesn't. He does indeed plan to play in the French Open. It's just he hasn't been competing in one of these, you know, elite level events. So. We will see. Also, you know, of course, the usual names are in action on the men's side. Sitsipas, team, Medvedev is going to try to get his game together ahead of the French Open so he can finally get a win. Medvedev's game just does not. He doesn't like the clay. Like his mentality is not the greatest on the clay. And also his game does not tend to. It hasn't translated yet. Like literally, he has not won a single match at Roland Garros at the French Open getting his career. So he's trying to get that together <laughs> together. The Madrid champion also rolls into Rome with some pretty good pretty good confidence. Um let's see. Oh, this uh Ugo Humbert versus Yannick Sinner first round match. The winner of that takes on the doll in the second round. That should be a fun opening round match. I like both of those young guys. Um uh, Novak Djokovic could potentially face the winner of Daniel Evans and Taylor Fritz in the second round. Those two play in the first round, Evans and Fritz. And that's interesting because both of those players are tied to Djokovic this season for a couple different reasons. Daniel Evans actually beat Novak Djokovic in the Masters 1000 men's event a couple of weeks back in Monte Carlo. Beat him in straight sets, I'm pretty sure. And that was pretty shocking for Novak Djokovic to le- to lose to Dan Evans. And then also Taylor Fritz was the player that Novak Djokovic struggled against in the 2021, this year's Australian Open. He allegedly <laughs> uh, tore an oblique muscle in that match. So it's interesting that he's going to have to play a rematch of one of those players in the second round. Go Evans, go Fritz. That's all I'll say on that one. <laughs> And uh, it looks like Gael Mofi is actually in the draw for this one. I haven't seen his name in a draw. He's been kind of working his way back because the pandemic basically stopped him in his tracks. So that was an interesting one. Um, yeah, but it, again, I'm not I'm not calling any uh, winners or predictions. I do think that um, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal are probably going to head into this event wanting to get some good matches under their belt so they can feel more confident. I mean, Nadal has won a title this year on clay in Barcelona, but I think he really enjoys the conditions in Rome, as does Novak Djokovic. So I'm pretty sure both of them are going to have their good hard hats on and try to play as, as much good tennis as they possibly can ahead of the French Open. So that is Rome, the Internazionale. I always mess this up, but I love saying it. The Internazionale Binel d'Italia. <laughs> it is going to be a good week of tennis before um, the calm before the storm basically happens. After this tournament, there are going to be some smaller tournaments between here and the French Open. But for the for the most part, the top, top players are going to take the uh, remaining two weeks off and prepare for the French Open. So... That is Rome. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll be posting about the results on the uh, Twitter and Instagram link to the podcast. So tap into those if you haven't. And that wraps up today's edition of Tune Into Tennis. I'm going to take a quick break and then come back to talk about some pop culture, hot topics and some stuff that is just not sitting well in my spirit as I read my timelines and scroll my timelines and all that stuff. So I'll be right back.
So honestly, y'all, there's just been one thing on my mind and on my timeline that has just itched me a little bit. And I just wanted to share to keep you in the loop because I feel like some people are like, Miles, what are you talking about? And it affects me. <laughs> it affects me because not only does it include Serena Williams, but it includes something that I find very bothersome. Um, so just backstory, Serena Williams, like this week, like, like before Mother's Day, days before that, she posted a picture. Um, and again, for more context, she's been in France for the past couple of weeks doing some clay court training. She hasn't been competing in tournaments, but she has been training and she's been very vocal about it, sharing it on her Instagram stories. And fun fact, I actually got a chance to speak with her agent who's been her agent for years and years jill smoller on clubhouse randomly one night and jill was saying how they're in nice france training blah 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 right so serena gets on instagram and i think she wanted to just document a pair of heels i think the designer was stuart weitzman she's worked with stuart weitzman before had a whole campaign for him all that stuff she's the shit right like people want to be attached to serena's name to sell their shit i get it so she was doing just a, a small ad showing off some heels either that heel designer or shoe designer or some other boutique some shit sent her some fucking heels right in the picture she posted the focus never actually went to the shoes and went right up to her face because the tone <laughs> of her the skin complexion on her face looked different compared to one, what she normally looks like. And two, it looked different compared to the rest of her body. So of course the trolls and the people that just naturally always disliked her went straight to accusations of skin bleaching. And as soon as I saw the pictures posted on Twitter, like I knew this was going to go viral and become like a little talkable moment. As soon as I saw the pictures, not only because I love Serena, but because I know how people are and because I knew they were going to link this in some way, shape or form to the fact that she's married to Alexis, who is a white man and has been married to him for a couple of years now. They always do that when her name is brought up. And those are two things that I find really, really annoying that they do to black women. One, let's just address the skin, the skin tone thing. Serena, if you look at that picture and you look at the rest of her Instagram, in order to get to a point of where you're your skin has been notice noticeably bleached it's a it's a gradual process if you look at serena's images there's nothing super drastic about her skin tone especially for someone that is always on instagram live or doing instagram stories she's active you would you would either person going through skin bleaching would probably take some time away to not make it look so drastic or we would just be able to pick up hints the rest of her timeline the rest of her instagram feed the rest of her photos out there look like a normal black woman it's just that if i'm putting two and two together and she's been in nice france and on top of the fact that we are still in this goddamn pandemic and she probably couldn't have the makeup team or the beauty team that she normally would have to put together looks on Instagram because let's face it, Instagram as much as, as, as drawn down or as dumbed down as you may want to look at it, it is a source of revenue for celebrities and influencers and all that stuff alike. So there's money to be made and she probably was going to make a cute little check of just posting her in those heels for that designer, right? The makeup job that she did, either if she did it, I give her complete grace in just thinking that she just had a bad day. 
no, the makeup did not flatter her at at all. It was the wrong shade, and she did look a little bit like a character out of the White Chicks movie. However, people on on Instagram and just internet in, in general take it a step further. The Instagram picture went viral. People kept sharing it and ended up putting more and more filters on the on her picture to make her look even lighter than she did in the original picture. And then kept saying that they're accusing her of skin bleaching. People were making TikToks, which also forced me to make my first TikTok. And Lord knows I never was interested in the TikTok trend, but now I'm like slightly interested. I don't know. Maybe this, maybe this needed to happen. I don't know. I don't know why that was, but people were talking, people were saying that she hated herself, that she's now weak or she's in the sunken place because she's married to a white man and she's wanted to bleach her skin and she doesn't want to be associated with being black anymore. And I'm just like, I'm biased because I've loved this woman for a long time and she's a tremendous athlete to me, but she is literally almost 40. She is literally born to a black black woman, born to a black man, has created a black daughter, has black siblings, all of the above. All of her life has been black. The whitest thing she's done is play tennis in a very white dominated sport. And she's literally gotten hell for doing so. And never after all of those years of literally getting called the N word in public it, at stadiums. All of all the things I can rattle down right now, I'm not going to. She's never contemplated bleaching her skin. Why would she do that now? Why? It just logically doesn't make sense. I'm I would walk my statements back if I found out if it came out that she actually was skin bleaching, because that would be awful. But it logically does not make sense for this woman who is literally identifiable anywhere in the world to start to start bleaching her skin. And then for trolls on the internet to create this narrative that she is doing so because she hates her blackness and is in the sunken place because she married a white man and this would not have happened if she would have married a black man. Excuse me? Like, I don't, I don't, that's the other thing. I don't understand why there's always this quickness to derail a black woman if she marries outside of her race. I am not saying that every black woman should run to every other man outside of their race. I'm not saying that, but I do believe that if you find love outside of your race, the differences of races shouldn't be a problem. You should love who you love, period. Point blank. I just don't understand why it's an issue. And I hate to generalize, but the accounts I see doing that kind of trolling are always often black men and some other black women. Why are you tearing down your own? I just, I, I, I don't get that. I will never understand that, especially for a woman who has literally gone through what she's gone through and achieved in spite of because she is a black woman and looks like a black woman undeniably. She's always going to be a black woman. Why now would she want to bleach her skin? Yes, I know there are examples of Sammy Sosa and even Lil' Kim. They were comparing her to Lil' Kim because clearly if you do a side-by-side, Lil' Kim looks nothing like the Lil' Kim that she did when she first came on the scene. She looks lighter and she physically looks different. Serena, I'm sure, I'm sure with the amount of money in her bank account and the resources that she has, has had any a list of facial improvements or movements or anything I just do not believe that she is actually going the route of bleaching her skin. And if she was bleaching, wouldn't she bleach her legs, arms, and all the above? Why would she just do her face? That it would it would be clear, right? It would be clear that she looks ridiculous. She has she has sense. Like she's not a dummy. 
like y'all just y'all take narratives and I'm, I'm saying y'all so if, if this ain't you it don't apply to you but i'm just saying y'all in general y'all do that y'all take narratives and run with them and then it's all of a sudden she doesn't like herself when in actuality it might just be you boo it, it, you might need to look in the mirror because what's wrong with giving that black woman grace and just being like she doesn't have a good beauty day y'all don't be looking at them fucking uh youtube videos that take 30 minutes to put together a face Makeup does a lot these days. Hell, fucking Rihanna just released the shade y'all needed yesterday. So maybe she doing maybe she was doing her makeup on her own, which she, something she may have gotten unaccustomed to doing because one, she does not need to wear makeup all the time because she's an athlete and is training. And two, maybe she did not have the proper m makeup and beauty team by her side to create the look she wanted to do. And the team that did do it is not accustomed to working with her face or the lighting or anything. It could have been a multitude of reasons, but skin bleaching and going to that one first is stupid. Period. Point blank. There's no other way to put it. And the fact that 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 that's the only time y'all really mentioned Serena, like that's the only moment that she goes viral. If she would actually win a tournament that doesn't go as viral. But I'm glad y'all actually did that. Maybe that'll put some fire under her butt to win Roland Garros and win Wimbledon because now y'all talking about her and making her like a hashtag. All you gotta do is hashtag Serena Williams and you'll see them stupid ass pictures that people have lightened up to make her look like a character out of white chicks when she never looked like that in the first place. Was her was her makeup not blended correctly? Yes, but did she look that bad? No. It was bad, but it wasn't that bad, okay? <sighs> That's all I'll say about that. Stop playing with her. Stop playing with her. That's all. Stop playing with her like that. So just very quickly and briefly, because if I talk too much about this, I'm going to get extra annoyed. I guess I wanted to mention this because it is, it is related to sport and it's related to the podcast. And it's something where I feel like the powers that be are completely missing the point entirely. And I'm talking about the Olympics. The Olympics were postponed last year because of the pandemic, obviously. And this year they are trying their best to go ahead. I think we're some something like less than 80 days away from when it's supposed to start. And honestly, I could give two shits if they get it if they get it done or not, I really could because these recent headlines that have been coming out about them banning religious or political indicators or uh, gestures of any time or, or any of any kind or making those political or religious gestures findable or something that is actually going to kick the athletes out of the competition is completely missing the point and missing where we are as a nation. They specifically said anybody that wears a Black Lives Matter t-shirt or anything of that caliber of, of, of statement will be subject to fine or, um, or worse from the Olympics. And I just cannot understand why that is a hill that they want to get on and die on right now when they should be more concerned about at actually and adequately hosting a global sporting event in the middle of a Panasonic television. I just don't understand it. We are literally like, I mean, I gr granted I'm vaccinated. A lot of people around me are vaccinated. So things are looking brighter, but when you mix the kind of environment that just naturally is supposed to take place in a Olympic venue and Olympic competition we're talking about people from all over the globe and this has been a global pandemic why is your concern about people wearing black lives matter t-shirt when indeed we are still in a world that shows us 
daily that black lives don't really matter. I haven't talked, I haven't touched on this again because it annoys my spirit, but the Derek Chauvin trial and the murder of George Floyd. He was just convicted a couple of weeks ago. He was convicted on all three counts. Yay, let's celebrate that. The very same day, a video went viral of, I think her name is Micaiah, sweet baby. Another girl gunned down by police for defending herself in the midst of a fight. Yes, she had a knife in her hand at the time, but as soon as the police got there, they put three bullets in her chest. That would not have happened if her name was Susie. Even, it, it, it just would not have happened. Susie could have had a hand grenade in her hand. She would not have gotten shot. You know why? Because there are plenty of examples of white people doing horrible things and living to tell the story. Yes, they may go to jail, but they don't die where they're doing their crime. Committing a crime, especially a nonviolent one like George Floyd was doing, even if he was doing a crime, it does not mean your life should end in that moment. That is not justice. That's not justice. Literal, literal serial killers and serial rapists get patty caked in the system because they are white and they do heinous crimes. But this 15 year old girl that had a butter knife in her hand cannot live the rest of her life because a white police officer got out of his car and shot her up. Like with actual bullets, she is dead and cannot and cannot breathe another day. She was a foster child. She probably she most likely she had a very troubled life and she died to never see the bright side of that, to never get through her, her, her trials that she didn't ask for. At 15 years old, you put bullets in her chest because she was defending herself and never even stopped to get the full story of why she would need to be protecting herself outside of her home with a butter knife. And it's all because of, of simply because of how she looked. The police officers in this country make split split decisions and they often end up in black people dying. That is an issue and that is why black lives continually need to matter. And I, I'm always going to support a shirt when I see it. I'm always going to support the hashtag when I see it in somebody's bio. I'm just always going to support it because I'm, I'm black. I'm black. I know if I'm put if I put myself in any of these situations of these multiple hashtags of people that we have seen go completely viral, I am sus I am suspect to not make it home to my family. That is not the same. If I was a white guy, it's just not. I don't I don't care if that makes you uncomfortable. But for the Olympics to literally go out of their way to ban specifically that statement when so many political and racial moments have happened time and time and time and time again at the Olympics. Literally, they said no one can raise a fist. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Come on now. Your Olympics are already one year behind. Don't push them out further. Don't don't push those ratings down further because you're already you already have lost money and people are uncomfortable with the idea of a global event of that size happening in the middle of this popsicle stick they were in. Come on now. No Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Well, who is that going to offend? And why didn't that, what was going on in the 2016 Olympics? Because I'm pretty sure Black Lives Matter mattered then. Like, come on. And then as far as tennis goes, as far as my interest in tennis, Naomi Osaka literally six, seven months ago wore seven masks of seven different slain people who were murdered by the police and never got true justice. She is going to be one of your star athletes representing Japan. And you're telling her she can't wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, but she can wear one that just says, we're all here to get along. When that's not realistic, there is a, there is a huge problem. And yes, there will be Americans competing in the Olympics. I don't, I, I personally, 
as much as I love sport and I I do, I do really in, enjoy watching the Olympics for the two or three weeks that they're on. If they're going to be on that kind of bullshit, I promise you I'll find something else to do. I promise you, because that completely misses the point to me. This should be about providing examples of where we should be moving forward in the world, not pushing us back, not stifling people's, not stifling people's freedom of speech. There is a problem in I mean, you can take this how you want. Celebrities, athletes that turn into celebrities have influence. They have huge platforms. You don't know whose mind could be changed by seeing a Black Lives Matter movement at the Olympics on a huge stage. And to take that away from them and to find them or tell them that they won't be able to comp compete because of that makes zero sense to me. It literally makes zero sense, especially when you look at the history of the Olympics and how many people have done just that. What makes you so special in Japan? What what are the powers that be that are allowing you the gall and the audacity to make these kind of headlines that you don't want this kind of stuff associated to your Olympics? Fuck out of here. The fuck complete the fuck out of here. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I won't support it because it makes zero sense. It makes zero sense. Your focus should be elsewhere. <sighs> anyway, I've got that off my chest and it's been a good episode, y'all. I think it has. One other thing I did want to mention to you guys right before I wrap up is one of the links I have in the podcast description that says support this podcast. Um, just very briefly, if you are enjoying the podcast and you actually want to contribute to the growth of the show, please consider clicking that link in the description that says support this podcast. It's tied directly to my podcast hosting website, Red Circle. And it's super simple and easy. The website gives you an option of a one-time donation in support of the show, or you can opt in to schedule a monthly donation, essentially becoming a sponsor of the show both are completely optional but i would appreciate them um and not required to continue listening to the content of the show but it does go a long way in growing and advancing the show and i would appreciate it so that wraps up today's episode of missing the point i'll be back later on to give you guys more content stay tuned there might be an episode dropping this thursday don't tell nobody i'm joking there probably will be an episode dropping this thursday <laughs> Like I said, I'm 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 enjoying getting back in the swing of things and sharing these episodes with y'all. I I appreciate the feedback I've been getting. Keep showing me love on Instagram so we can all keep growing together and we can have this thing be what it's gonna be. Okay, so that's me. I'm signing out for now. I appreciate you guys. Until next time, take care. Enjoy yourselves. Be safe. Get vaccinated if it's available in your area and continue thriving and living. Okay. Until next time, peace, guys. Take care. <laughs>